Please remain standing and turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Let's turn now to our sermon text, which is Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul, thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. 
I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. Like the crawling things of the earth, they shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will Again, have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Amen. You may be seated. William Butler Yeats was a famous uh, 20th century poet uh, whose probably his most well-known and often quoted poem today is one called The Second Coming, where he begins um, by describing this uh, sense of this kind of dread and despair and loss of meaning that Uh, really characterized so much of the 20th century, um, in particular, right around the time he was writing, 1919, right after World War I, right? And so it starts like this, uh, turning and turning in the widening gyre. This this is like a vortex in the air, the circling bird. He's picturing this falcon uh, circling overhead, but he's getting farther and farther in a wider and wider circle from its owner down below, turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. There you probably start to recognize it. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere 
the ceremony of innocence is drowned. And listen to this. He says, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. In other words, the people that you'd want to take the lead won't do it. And, and the people who actually are stepping up to make a difference in the world are the ones who are making everything much, much worse. And um, That poem has kind of remained relevant and poignant down through the decades of the past century um, because many generations along the way, including our own, have, have kept feeling that same sense, and we still feel it today, that so much of culture and society are just breaking down, it feels like, that the center cannot hold, that things are falling apart, if not flying apart, around us. But, you know, I think if the prophet Micah could have read those words, I think to him, too, that poem would have felt very contemporary. Uh, we read it, and we, and we think today, wow, it sounds like he wrote that last week. Well, I think Micah in the 7th century B.C. could have thought the very same thing. Um, and in fact, the reason I bring this up is because the opening to Micah chapter 7 really shares a lot in common with Yeats's assessment of the world in his day as Micah looks at the state of Judah in his uh, but as you go on through Micah 7, Micah 7 ends very differently than Yeats's poem does. You see this great contrast where Yeats's poem goes on to end with a sense of this foreboding dread at the end. Uh, Micah's prophecy, um, even though he's gone through some very deep valleys along the way in chapters 1 through 6, uh, and this chapter, um, these valleys of judgment and warning and woe, um, he ends up ascending at the very end of the book, out of those valleys to a high point of, of hope in the Lord and his steadfast love. Hope that in spite of Israel's great sin, that the grace of God is greater still even than that. Grace that is greater than all our sin. So here are the points that we're going to follow today as we work through this passage. First will be an epidemic of evil, verses 1 through 7. Second, the turn of the tide, verses 8 through 17. And then finally, a greater grace, verses 18 to 20. So an epidemic of evil, the turn of the tide, and a greater grace. So first, that epidemic of evil. Micah begins, woe is me. This is not a statement of self-pity. It's a statement of lament over the state of Judah. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. In other words, the, this vineyard this or, or this orchard is, is completely picked over, right? Uh, the prophet now feels that the godly has perished from the earth, and there's nobody upright left. Everybody, it feels like, is plotting some kind of violent plan against somebody else. Everybody's hunting each other with nets. Our kids recently uh, learned a version of tag called Chaos Tag. I didn't play this when I was a kid, but they've been playing with their friends. Sounds pretty fun. It starts with the rule, though, that everybody is it. 
Everybody's trying to tag everyone else. You can imagine why it's called chaos tag. Micah finds himself right here living in a chaotic culture where this mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, as we heard earlier from Yates, that blood-dimmed tide. Everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. There's nobody innocent left. They're all fighting against one another. And so the whole society is imploding in its own viciousness. And it would be bad enough if the people around him were, were simply failing to do what God's law says. They were just ignoring the law of God, just kind of slacking off, just getting lazy about keeping the covenant. But of course, it's much worse than that because the people around Micah are actually very energetic. They're very creative. They're very crafty. They're very skillful, and they're very good at what they do. The problem is they are applying all of that creativity, all of that skill, all of that energy to their rebellion against God. It says their hands are on what is evil to do it well. They're really good at being bad, in other words. Their hands, uh, oh, let's see, let's see uh, he says, um, uh, so these people will say to them, like, well, here's the evil desire of my soul, and then I'm going to go and get it. I'm going to go make a plan. I'm going to weave this plan together. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to cast uh, my vision. I'm going to set my goals. I'm going to make my action plan. I'm going to go and get it done. The best of them, Micah says, is like a briar. The most upright of them, like a thorn hedge. Again, it's like those lines of poetry. The best lack all conviction. The worst are full of that passionate intensity. It's the same picture Micah's giving to us here. This is something we've got to remember, by the way, as the people of God. This is kind of an aside, but we've got to remember that when, we're, uh, when we get tired, we sort of start to slack off or become a little bit complacent in the Christian life. Um, or in, in the church, uh, a little more relaxed, a little less vigilant. The other side is not slacking off, not taking a break, is not calling a truce. It's like the hymn says, Watch against the devil's snares, lest asleep he find thee, for indeed no pains he spares to deceive and blind thee. Satan's prey oft are they who secure are sleeping and no watch are keeping. Uh, you think about a battle, um, you know, af- after a battlefield victory, the victorious general can't, um, as they say, kind of rest on their laurels, right? Because the enemy is is not off merely licking their wounds and moping about losing that battle. What they're doing is they're regrouping. They're preparing for a counterattack. We have to remember that where we live now is the people of God in Christ. The kingdom of Satan is defeated, but it is dangerous nonetheless. It's like a wounded and cornered animal is still seeking to destroy whatever and whomever of Christ's kingdom and people that he can, and he's not resting. Your hands are one, what is evil to do it well. Now, Matthew Henry compares uh, Micah's experience here to Elijah. Uh, Elijah, when uh, he's being uh, chased by Jezebel, he runs away from her, and the Lord meets him, and he tells the Lord, uh, Jezebel's been persecuting your prophets, And I alone am left, and now they're seeking to take my life. And he feels so alone. He feels like the war has been lost, that it's all over for him. Um, I think also uh, of Abraham's conversation with the Lord um, about Sodom and Gomorrah, when he says, Lord, what if you find 50 righteous people there? 
What about 40? What about 30? What about 10? And the Lord says, okay, I'll I'll spare the city for the sake of 10. But the tragedy of that story is that not even 10 righteous people can be found. Not even among the family of Lot. And so what a verdict here. As Micah is saying, Judah has become like that. Now we could think a little more broadly, um, this relates to not just this particular historic situation for Judah. This is really the basic normal state of the human race ever since the fall. Right? This is what uh, Paul is getting at when he's in Romans 3. He's quoting from the Psalms, and he says in Romans 3, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All have sinned, right? Romans 3.23. Many have memorized that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is an epidemic of evil. Or now I guess in this decade we could call it even worse. It's a pandemic of evil. (laughs) Unleashed by that first sin of Adam, encompassing all of us. And each of us. What's happened here among the covenant people is that that universal problem of sin that infects all of humanity in this general sense has um, taken a particularly intense form. It's like in Judah, it has come to maturity in this particularly severe way. It's been ratcheted up in intensity. It's like they've turned it up to 11 and it's all the worse because this is the covenant people of God who are supposed to be different, who are supposed to be living according to the law of God, and yet here we are. Notice how that problem of widespread sin, this epidemic of evil, is leading uh, to the breakdown then of Israel's society, of the relationships among uh, the covenant people. Even where, well, think about this. Uh, Because of God's common grace, uh, where he restrains evil in the world, um, because of that, even among very wicked people, uh, you will often find vestiges, traces of good, especially in their closest relationships, maybe within within families, for example. Real loyalty, real sacrificial love. Um, You could think uh, often twisted and distorted by the evil in their hearts, but there's there's something there. You could think, for example, about like the Godfather where you have this mastermind of crime and theft and murder and all kinds of evil, and yet within the family there's this bond, this, this fierce commitment, and it's something that's almost admirable, right? Um, even though it's distorted and twisted. But in this community, look at what's happened. Look at how bad it's gotten that even those vestiges, even those traces of goodness, of, of evil restrained, of loyalty and love having... Uh, some kind of respect, at least in families, even that is gone. Neighbors can't trust each other. Uh, Friends, even your wife, even your son or your daughter, a man's enemies, it says, are the men of his own house. Israel has descended so low. The covenant community has become not a community at all. It has been totally overrun by this epidemic of evil so that the people cannot trust one another. What you're seeing described here 
is really the opposite, then, of Micah 6.8, that famous verse from the last chapter. This is the opposite of doing justice and loving kindness or chesed and walking humbly with your God. It's all been reversed. Things are not just wrong in Judah. They are exactly wrong. They are the opposite. They are diametrically opposed to how God's people are supposed to be, to what the covenant community is supposed to look like. And so, if earlier Bible history is to be our guide, then things don't look very good for Judah, do they? If they've become like Sodom, nobody righteous left to shield them from the hammer of the wrath of God falling, then what can they expect but to become like Sodom? Just wiped from the face of the earth, blotted out of history, disappearing completely from God's plan. But, of course, that's not the only part of Bible history that's relevant here to guide us in thinking about what might happen next. Because you can also think of Elijah. Remember when Elijah felt this way like Micah, when he thought he was alone, when it seemed like there was no hope left? What made the difference in his case? It's something that God said that he was going to do. I will leave, God said. I will leave 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. It's the Lord who is going to intervene to do something supernaturally to overcome and to reverse the natural course of things where they would otherwise inevitably lead. To um, turn back the outcome that his people have deserved, the trajectory that they've set for themselves It is going to take the Lord's initiative, the Lord's sovereign intervention by his almighty power to change that. And that is exactly, in verses 8 to 17, what God says he plans to do. You could ask, is judgment coming for Judah? Is Judah going to fall? Well, eventually to Babylon, yes. But is that even going to be the end? Is it going to be the end of God's plan? Is it going to be the end of the covenant? Is it going to be the end of Israel? And the prophet here says, no. He says, rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall. Uh, Micah now is speaking sort of as a representative, embodying the whole nation. As he says, when I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. And so, yes, I'm going to bear the indignation of the Lord. Yes, I, and again, he's speaking here as an individual representing the people. Yes, I slash we have sinned against him. Um, But that coming judgment for that sin is not going to be the end of Israel's story. Because after that, God is going to do something else. He is going to plead my cause. He's going to execute judgment for me. He is going to bring me out of that darkness to the light. Micah is looking forward then to this great sea change, what we're calling the turn of the tide. When the judgment is going to have passed by, the judgment is going to be over. And God's people are going to experience a time instead of renewal and restoration on the other side. And then it's their enemies then 
um, who are going to find themselves now no longer the instruments of God's judgment against Israel, but the objects of that judgment, right? Because they too have rebelled against the Lord. Although that's not the only outcome, even for the nations. They're going to become the objects of God's judgment unless there's an exception, right? Look at verse 13. Uh, well, verse 13 is the, is the, the judgment. There it's going to be desolate because the inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. But look at verse 12. Verse 12 is the exception. Verse 12 is the way out even for the nations, the ones who come from Assyria and Egypt, but they gather with Israel. They gather with the people of God. And that, that takes us back, if you can remember, back to chapter 4, the imagery of that city on a hill, the nations flowing to Mount Zion that's been lifted up above all the other mountains. The whole world finding blessing and security and peace. How? By joining with the people of God in the worship of the one true God. It's the hope not just for Israel and for Judah. It's the hope for the world. It's one and the same. It's for God to become their shepherd, verse 14. For God to do again in the future something like what he has done in the past. This is going to be, you could say, a new exodus. Marvelous things. Like what God did for Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. That's what it's going to be like when God does this again for Israel and for the world. And you notice how God's victory over the hostile nations, the ones who don't repent, don't gather with Israel, that victory is pictured in terms here. This is wonderful. It's pictured in terms of the curse against the serpent from way back in Genesis 3. On your belly you shall go. You remember how God told the serpent that all the days of your life? And, and you're going to eat that dust. And one day what's going to happen with the offspring of the woman is going to crush your head, devil. See, the defeat of the nations that Micah is looking forward to here is part of that promise. It's part of that history that God previewed for the whole world. It's part of fulfilling that arch promise from the very beginning. These nations are, in a very real spiritual sense, the offspring of the serpent. And that's why they're going to share his destiny. But see, Micah wants God's people to know, he wants you to know this morning as the people of God living today, that that is not the only possible outcome for you. It's not the way it has to be for you. If you hold on to your sin, if you stay committed to your rebellion, if you keep pouring all of your energy and your creativity and your skill into devoting your life to the pursuit of your way and your pleasure and your plans for your personal happiness, well, then yes, then you're going to come under this judgment. But what if there is another way? What if there is a way for God to be your shepherd? For God to give you provision and peace and protection of a kind that, that your pride and all of your best laid plans and all of your hard work can never get you. At this point, I guess we really should probably ask, well, why should there be another way? Why should there be another way, another path, another possible outcome? I mean, if Micah's right... If things have really gotten this bad, this epidemic of evil, then why doesn't God just put an end to it all? Why doesn't he just say, okay, well, you had your chance, game over? Israel's sin here is so potent, it's so widespread, it's so ingrained, it's so intense. Micah has painted for us a picture here 
where it should seem impossible for there to be any other potential end to the story except total condemnation, total judgment, total annihilation of the people, of the covenant, of the plan, of the happy future. But what we find in the end is that Micah has brought us this low. He has put things this starkly. He's pulled off the gloves, given us this full force reality of the disaster of Israel's sin, of our sin, in order to show us something more powerful still. Mightier still than that. More energetic. More creative than all of our evil. Something much better than Israel's sin is bad. You understand that? As bad as this sin is in this direction, Micah's going to show us something that's even better in that direction. Something more beautiful than your sin is ugly. Can you believe that? So what is that hope here? What is that way out? What makes the difference? Brings Israel brings us back from the brink. Tell you what it's not. It's not Israel trying again. Getting a second chance. Trying to do better the next time. What makes the difference is something outside of Israel. It is the character of God. It is something about who God is. About what God is like and uh, in, in a way that separates him from everybody else. A way that God is unique. That's how this book ends. As Micah asks this great question, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. Passing over transgression for the remnant. Of course, that's been a recurring theme in Micah, right? Uh, Yes, most of the nation actually is going to come under judgment, but God is preserving a remnant. He's going to keep his covenant going. He's going to make sure that his promises do not fail because he's going to do what it takes to preserve a people for himself, to keep a community intact, keep things from falling apart, to hold that center when Israel cannot hold the center for themselves. And so, yes, God is a righteous judge. Yes, he's going to deal with sin with perfect uprightness and integrity. But he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us, like it says. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. I love that imagery. You see what God is going to do with his people's sin. He's going to trample them in the dust, put his boot prints all over them. And he's going to do away with them even in a more permanent way than that. I love verse 19. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Can you picture that? You're out on a a ship in the middle of the Pacific and you take a rock and you heave it as far as you can out into the ocean and you barely even see the splash in the waves because the vastness of the ocean is already overwhelming. That stone as it sinks down and down and down into the depths. Is anyone ever going to be able to locate that rock again? It's gone forever, vanished, without a trace. That is what God promises to do with your sin when you cling in faith to the promises that he has given to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It says important here, Micah is telling us in his prophecy that God will remove our sins in this way. He also tells us why he will do it, because he's compassionate, because he's merciful and gracious. He delights in chesed, steadfast love. He's committed in love to his people and his covenant. Something Micah doesn't spell out for us, though, is how. How is God going to do it? How can it be that all of this sin, all of this weakness, all of this rebellion and guilt, how can it be that God will overcome it all? How can God just remove it? How can God just take it away? How can God blot it out instead of blotting you out? How can God pardon it? Well, it's the gospel that tells us the how, the answer to that question. Yes, all have sinned. Yes, there's no one righteous. Yes, the wages of that sin is death. That's what we deserve. Not pardon, not grace, not forgiveness. We deserve condemnation and hell. But then the gospel goes on. That the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because Jesus offered to God that perfect life of obedience that we could never live. Jesus died on the cross, the death that we deserved to die. He obeyed in our place, and he suffered in our place. See, now it's through believing in him that the scriptures say we can escape the judgment that we deserve. That is the how. That is how God will pardon all our sins. It's through Jesus, through trusting him. We escape that judgment and get instead the blessing and the everlasting joy that Jesus has deserved for us. Because, of course, Jesus didn't, he didn't stay dead, right? Our sin, our guilt, the death that we deserved, all of those things stayed buried in his tomb. But Jesus did not. He left them there in the depths. And he rose again to new life in the resurrection. He tread our iniquities underfoot. He cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. But he, he rose victorious to an unshakable, unlosable life that now he shares. Now he shares with you. He shares it with every person who looks to him in faith and says, Lord Jesus, I admit it. My sin is bad. It is really bad. My guilt is great. It is heavy. It is overwhelming. It is more than I can handle. There's nothing that I can possibly do to make up for it. But I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in what you have done for me in Christ. I'm trusting your gospel promise that says that your grace is greater. It's even stronger than my guilt. It's a grace that is greater than than all our sin. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that where our sin increased, your grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, as we prayed before, so we pray again. Help us to heed the warnings of the prophet Micah. 
but also to trust these promises which you've given to us as we look to Christ in faith and experience that grace of yours that is so much greater even than all our sin. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.